Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Matthew Skelton. Based in Leeds, Matthew is founder and head of consulting at Conflux, where he provides consulting and training for tech strategy and software engineering practices. He has been working on commercial software systems in various capacities since 1998 and published books through Skelton Thatcher Publications, which he co-founded. You can follow Matthew on Twitter at Matthew P. Skelton, and you can learn more about him on his website, blog.matthewskelton.net. Matthew is the author or co-author of four books on LeanPub, and a number of other books. Uh, the books on LeanPub being Team Guide to Software Operability, Proven Techniques for Making Software Work Well, Build Quality In, Continuous Delivery and DevOps Experience Reports, Better Whiteboard Sketches, How to Sketch Clear Technical Diagrams, and his latest book, Internal Tech Conferences, uh, How to Accelerate Multi-Team Learning Across Departments. In this interview, we're going to talk about Matthew's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub to self-publish and his, and his uh, other work with publishers. So thank you, Matthew, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Len. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and software engineering. And uh, specifically, can you recall your first experience with a computer? Sure. Um, so I, I grew up near where I live now. So I, uh, in, in Bradford, which is very close to Leeds, north of England. Um, and um, I actually was intending to study music. And, I, and actually, I've come back to that. Well, maybe talk a little bit about that later. Um, but at the moment, I've been like I've been learning trumpet for the last few years, and it's the most amazing thing. Um, so actually, I didn't do a lot of computers uh, when I was growing up. I was really super focused on on the musical side. Um, but I I spent a year before so before going to university, I spent a year. Uh, working as a lab technician, laboratory technician in a in a school, so I did lots of practical science, basically. So preparing experiments, uh, you know, getting big laser machines out of the cupboard, and preparing bullseyes for dissection, and all this kind of stuff. So it's actually super interesting. Um, uh, but I remember actually having a conversation with uh, my colleague at the time, uh, who the the senior technician, who actually explained to me how computers work in terms of, you know, instructions addressing uh, addressing. Um, parts of memory. And I realized at that point that I had no clue about computers at all, uh, which is kind of interesting point to start from. Um, and um, I think I think that, that that sort of that little anecdote actually kind of uh, reflects sort of my interest in in computers as in terms of how they work, not just what we can do with them. Um, so I've never been particularly interested in things like computer games or or, or, or some aspects of kind of building software, but I'm super interested in, in how they work. So um, at, uh, I, I was at university in uh, Reading in the south of England, and the, uh, I studied computer science and cybernetics. So cybernetics being theory of control systems, um, uh, the, the, the primacy of feedback loops and understanding systems in terms of feedback, multiple feedback loops. So... Uh, the department I was at was one of the first departments to build autonomous robots, for example, back in the in the early 90s. Um, and um, that particular course was really interesting in the sense that we um, that they took a, um, a real systems thinking approach to to kind of systems in general. So we used computers to understand systems just because it's very straightforward to iterate very quickly using using software and, and, and electronics and things. But actually, we, we did I did a, a project, for example, on insect vision, so how do insects see? Uh, and uh, because there's all sorts of feedback loops in, in, the, in the insect visual system. And 
uh, my final year project there, I built uh, an, an autonomous weather station. So a weather station that's designed to sense pre uh, temp temperature pressure um, lightning as well. Um, and um, using using some well late 90s control networks and so on. But this is, so this is quite early, kind of maybe 20 years before kind of modern Internet of Things, IoT based um, remote devices and things. But we were doing some stuff using kind of 8-bit control networks at the time. But it was it, for me it was super interesting to kind of really get to grips with the detail of how things actually work, right down to the very kind of lowest level uh, at the at the kind of um, microprocessor level and down down onto onto the actual kind of wire bus wire level of, of of how computers work and then of course feel free to forget most of that as you move up the stack and so then you think you don't need to think of all that detail all the time but it, it's still there and i think that that kind of level of detail has has um has kind of put me in good stead if you like because if you if you know the the fundamentals then although most of the time you forget them you're never going to kind of really make a fundamental mistake about um, an algorithm that you're trying to implement in software, or, or some some um, try to think of another example, some sort of mistake about um, how data is stored in a database, or, or, or what happens in, in, when you make a, a SQL query, for example. So knowing the knowing the real fundamentals kind of really helps, even if most most of the time you, you can forget about it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, uh, I love I love asking this question about. I mean, because not all not all EMPUB authors are uh, you know in in tech. Uh, but many are, uh, and and learning about their first experience with this kind of technology is really interesting. And um, you're one of very few people uh, that I've interviewed who's first, I mean, lots of people get into the, the fundamentals at a certain point and find it fascinating. But a lot of people, their first experience is the magic of typing something and then mm. seeing something happen. You know, even even like a, one guy I interviewed recently, it was in a, in a calculator, like he had a scientific calculator that he could program in. Uh, mm -hmm. He just found that fascinating. And, uh, you know, someone else, you know, it was a bouncing ball on a Commodore 64. Mm. Uh, but there are there are there is the occasional person who it's like wait a minute like machines can do this uh, yeah, yeah. and you know get into like the information theory you know and and stuff like yeah. that and you know how the gates work and things like that and and so it's really it's really fascinating to learn everybody's journey and so I think I think you've already kind of answered this question for me but another question I always like to ask is if you were starting a career now uh, in in tech would you formally study computer science at university? Um. I think it's it has been super valuable. Certainly, where I studied it, because we had this combination with computer science, and it was actually the science of computing that we did. We did programming as well, but it was actually it, it, there's lots of theory behind it and so on. And we, but we also did practical stuff with robotics and with with um, human systems and a bit of psychology in there. So the course at Reading was actually really good because it it, it sets sets people up for. Um, for a kind of broader, deeper and broader understanding of, of computer systems than just a programming course, if you like. It wasn't just software engineering. It was, it was, it was a broader thing. So a course like that where you, do get to get, where you do get to see a bigger picture, you do get to see some of the theory, some of the fundamentals behind it, I think it can be very, really valuable. But actually, I was thinking about this recently. I think what we, what we really need in, in the industry is not just people who have done uh, who had some experience learning um, about kind of software and computer systems. We need people who have done psychology, people who have done uh, philosophy and, um, and ethics, people who have a sense of history, people who understand design. In other words, we need people from across the spectrum 
of human kind of interest and awareness. Building software systems these days, be having input into building software systems because software systems are becoming so prevalent, so all-pervasive in touching all parts of our lives, from agriculture, healthcare, not just banking and, and, and shopping, which it was for the last 20 years, but they're, they're starting to touch everything. So we need a diverse range of people, a full kind of spectrum, if you like, of people from, from, from all sorts of walks of life feeding into uh, and contributing to how we build these software systems. So um, I think it's important that we have some people who have been to university and, and, and studied the fundamentals. I think it's important we have some people who have come straight from uh, school and have learned their, their kind of craft as a as a programmer or as a systems person, but we, it's not just about that either. We also need people who have got very other, uh, very different perspectives, a, a kind of uh, more of an arts and humanities perspective as well, um, be, because this is about society. We, 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 this is about software affecting the society we live in. So I think we need a, a really broad range. Actually, that, that's that's. I wasn't planning on asking you this, but um, uh, one one thing that also comes up sort of routinely here is because like, I get to interview people from all around the world is different university systems. What was it like at Reading? Did you have to take electives, or did you only study kind of computer science and sort of cybernetics courses? For example, did you did you have to take some humanities courses as part of your degree? Uh, it was most so Reading. It was mostly. We had, we had some flexibility in what we could choose. There, there was some crossover, so some people chose to do some yeah, psychology modules or some sort of human systems uh, stuff. Most of it was, was, was fairly uh, predefined uh, where, um, where I was in, on that course. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I think it, yeah, yeah. Because what, you're, what you were saying sort of, sort of corresponds much more to the kind of North American model um, mm -hmm. of what an undergraduate university education should be than the than the British one, uh, which which and, and and one thing I wanted to say is I, I mean I may have said it already and I forgot but like I couldn't agree with you more you know it's it's funny how um, it and I the particular preoccupation I have because I you know my, my technical knowledge is not nowhere near yours but but you know I encounter design decisions like everyone else does every day uh, in software and a, a, an example that always I always think like to think of when it comes to this kind of thing is um, bookmarks in Chrome. If you mm -hmm. bookmark a website in Chrome, you can only put it in one folder. So if you bookmark it in one folder and then you try to bookmark it in another folder, it moves it to the other folder. And it's like, I can see, <laughs> I can see probably a, like I'm going to say the guy there, I can see the thinking of the guy who made that decision. And that is someone with no experience at all ever doing research. Any, yeah, or, 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 or even even no interest in in behaviour of of people who 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 come from a different mindset to them. Exactly. Possibly, exactly. that you said. Yeah, that exact precisely. Yeah, and that yeah, like that. And you can see, like, why would I mean? I've encountered this myself with someone going, "Why would anyone ever want to do that?" And it's like, why would you treat the limits of your own imagination as the limits of imagination itself? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you shouldn't relate to to, to to your own horizons that way. And um, and this is a problem that we encounter uh, in in the things that we use all the time that are designed by people who don't. It's not just that they don't. It's like no, nobody knows everything, but even lack a kind of fundamental curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more I think, the more that that people in their education are perhaps, I mean, you know, are, are sometimes forced to uh, branch out, the, mm. the, the more likely they are to understand that there's a world beyond what you know, and that when you're designing or creating things, you need to do it with that understanding. Um, mm. uh, this, this is actually all very relevant to my next question. So I, I was surprised to notice, notice when I was researching for this interview that you and I nearly overlapped at the University of Oxford, and uh, you studied neuroscience there. Um, That's right. And uh, the typical 
model of student life there for undergraduates and, and what, what they call postgraduates or graduate in North America, we call graduate students, uh, can seem unusual to people unfamiliar with it. And I would venture, venture to say this is particularly true for people more familiar with the North American university model. Most North American, well, yeah. So what, what was your experience like at Oxford? So I was on uh, the uh, master's uh, master in, uh, master of science in neuroscience, uh, and that was uh, quite a radical program. Uh, this, so this is back in, in um, 1999, 2000, so a while ago now. Um, but it's quite a radical program at the time where they um, where they took. Uh, students from a wide range of disciplines. So I was obviously coming from uh, computer science and cybernetics, but there were people on the course from who had backgrounds in philosophy, um, psychology, mathematics, biology, all sorts of different backgrounds in terms of the uh, undergraduate study being brought together to do um, to do um, master's level study in neuroscience. And, and that was deliberate because what they wanted to achieve was um, – this kind of diversity of opinion, um, because at the time, this is 20 years ago, it's quite clear that we didn't understand. Um, it, it was quite clear that we, we understand much less about how the brain worked than, than we had thought before. Nothing's changed in that respect. We, we still don't understand an awful lot about how the brain works. It's just become it's quite clear it's become more and more and more kind of awkward and complicated and nuanced. Um, and so it was a really, it was a, that was a really great experience, a really great course, because we had this this huge diversity of people coming from mostly from uh, mostly from the UK, but we had people from uh, North America and a few other places too. Um, and so the conversations that we would spark and the kind of positions uh, that we're coming from were led to some super interesting interesting discussions and super interesting perspectives on on brain function and um perception and sensing and this kind of thing um i mean maybe we'll talk about this a little bit in a little bit but um but that my experience there was has been um has been quite a, a real strong influence on uh, some of the work i've been doing recently uh with with the team topologies book um but um so outside of the outside of the course itself, the um, the, the 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 learning model at uh, Oxford is um, it needs a lot of independent study compared to some of the universities. Um, so more recently, I did a, I did a, a master's in in music at uh, the Open University, uh, which is a university based in the UK, but they've got they've they've got worldwide kind of presence. I think they've they've been doing um, distance learning since the 1960s. Like uh, back then, it was kind of sending. Uh, it was sending cassette tapes or, or videotapes or whatever it was out, out to people by post. Obviously, now it's all online. Um, and the Open University model is super supportive. You get loads and loads of really good materials and, and you're really guided through the learning and that kind of thing. And it is, it, that was a great experience as well. Oxford was very much the other, other, end, other end of the spectrum where uh, you're expected to be uh, very independent and so on. So I learned a lot about all sorts of stuff uh, from 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 that experience there um i have to ask what, uh, what, uh, what college were you at at brazenhouse college okay okay yeah where were you uh Balliol. okay just across just across yeah just around the corner yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's we'll uh, be there before or after, after were you there uh, slightly okay after two, I, 2001 2001 yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's it's interesting you say that about independence i'm just not to go too inside baseball on our listeners here but you know i this has come up on the podcast before that the the oxbridge model is basically you arrive and this is, and I don't know, I I can't speak to the undergraduate experience, although I do know a fair amount about it. But the sort of postgraduate experience is you arrive, and they you're like a kite that they let you out, and then they tie it to a rock, and then they come back <laughs> later to see if you're still flying. Yes, uh, 
and 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 it's uh it it suits a certain type of person and it mm. very much does not suit another type of person um mm. and uh yeah it's it's so if you're considering going uh keep 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 that in mind uh that that part of part of the part of part of the experience is being uh alone and doing things yourself yep. um yeah, and so that sounds like a really fascinating program, and it, and it becomes relevant to the work you do later. Um, mm. uh, just keeping keeping with the timeline, another coincidence I found when I was researching for this interview was um, back in 1999, uh, I was working in London for a company that was at the time called Computasoft, uh, and is now called Dialogic. And I, I remember when they came up with the name, actually. Uh, and I found that that you've actually worked with them as a consultant. Mm. Um, and that, that got me thinking that when I was there... Uh, from 99 to 2001, the company was building a huge database of information on corporate mergers and acquisitions around the world going back to 1995, uh, something that was only possible, at least the way my team did things, because of newly available search technology and the expansion of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the relevant technology that companies like Dialogic can use nowadays is orders of magnitude beyond, you know, just searching. Um, mm. But um what would you it got me thinking what what would you say are one or two of the biggest changes you've seen in the tech sector in the UK in the companies you've worked with over the course of your career and i say the UK because you know sometimes there are culturally specific things that are very interesting that can happen yep yep um, so the first one is obviously the move from desktop to web. So when I started working as a software developer back in uh, 2001 well I, I was doing some work prior to that actually um my very first job was was as a kind of network engineer, um, installing Windows ninety five machines in schools and colleges around the around the UK. So that was a long time ago. Um, so I learned a bit about networking and consulting back then. Um, but my first kind of real job was was writing software for um, brain imaging machines and uh, and sort of big hardware devices. But I was writing the desktop software. So the, the big switch since since you know two thousand. Well, a little bit earlier than that, but the big switch since in my career since 2001, whatever, has been this big shift to, to web-based um, delivery of applications and so on. Um, I mean, now we're seeing a switch towards uh, an expansion of stuff to include um, IoT devices, so very, very small devices um, where um, uh, a kind of fabric of, of compute, um, I, I, and I, I guess that's probably – um, yeah, this, this current wave is somewhat similar to the, the switch from, from desktop to web um, in the sense. So we've been working, for example, with uh, some uh, manufacturers in the UK and um, and there is an increased need to be able to um, grab telemetry and data, metrics data from the machines in the um, assembly on the assembly floor or, or in, the, in the processing plant itself. So sometimes that's retrofitting onto existing machinery that might be quite old. Sometimes it's actually deploying new sensor technology, sensor technology that can be um, more rapidly reconfigured and controlled. And there's starting to be this then bridge between. Um, between uh, the, the, the manufacturing plants and the cloud. So we're, we're scraping the data off the sensors and pushing it to, to the cloud for analytics and, and, and things like um, preventative maintenance of machines, which can save a huge amount of money. Um, so that's just in the manufacturing sector, but it kind of applies to healthcare, agriculture, and so on as well. So that's a huge shift at the moment where we're starting to see kind of sensing technology being deployed in, into a huge range of different different scenarios and then that data being pulled up and processed and we're able to make much more 
effective decisions about that that's actually data driven uh, that help us to avoid waste um, or to 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 better optimize the, the the machinery and so on we've got. So I, I think that's I think that is a big change. I think that's a big change, and I think a lot of organisations are sort of. Maybe either struggling or, or or might fall by the wayside if they don't adopt that kind of adopt that kind of approach. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So uh, I think I get what you're talking about with preventative maintenance. So basically, if you can have more or less real time data coming from sensors from machines, then you can see not you I mean the real time lets you know what's going on, but you can see patterns that can help you make make changes to how the machine is operating. Hmm. Uh, uh, so that you can prevent faults. Is that is that the kind of thing that you're? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing. So, so instead of sending a maintenance engineer out uh, once a year to 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 maintain a, a, an escalator or an elevator or something, you detect when it needs maintenance, and then you can avoid sending them out and send them out just at the right time. Yeah, that reminds um, me of a really interesting thing I read about. It was actually probably a couple of years ago now, but there was this I think famous kind of machine learning experiment that I think it was Google did on like a data center where oh, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. They, they, they set this machine learning algorithm to, uh, they gave it control over the like basically cooling mechanisms yep. in the data center. So this is like something as mundane as opening and closing vents, for example. Yep. Uh, yep. And it increased the efficiency of the data center by 15%. Mm. Uh, and in a, and you know, in a competitive world, uh, that's huge. You, you, that, that's huge. Yeah. But the idea yeah. that companies are like, you know, there, there's really this kind of, you can imagine it from a kind of C-suite perspective. I mean, really, I can just get the secret sauce uh, mm. if I've got the right sensors and, you know, the right computing going on in the cloud that I can increase the efficiency of my machinery mm. by this huge percentage. I mean, the incentive to get mm. to get involved in that must be really intense. Yeah, so that's what's driving all this AI stroke, machine learning stroke, kind of uh, algorithmic uh, application of, of, of data-driven stuff. So I think that that is one big thing. I think that the second thing that, that feels like a big shift is that um, many organizations haven't really realized that um, – or haven't really, haven't really taken advantage of the um, – kind of virtualization in cloud and and modern practices and still think that's uh, the, the the way in which they're running their kind of thinking and commercial view on 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 their product market uh, on their on their on, on their products or their market fit or whatever the, the, the way these companies are, seem to be running is still as if they're going to deploy some software onto a desktop so there's there's the the, the people running them have still got a kind of Software basically is just about what I can see on the screen. And this is hurting so many organizations because the way in which these companies are um, are prioritizing the work, prioritizing the software work, is basically crippling, crippling their ability to innovate, is, is effectively squeezing their own um, um, capabilities. So th- these sorts of organizations are – have not taken the time to think about um, operational concerns, think about testability, think about um, how easy it is to diagnose a problem, how easy it is to restore a service after it's fallen over. So all they're thinking about is a set of features and pushing those features out as quickly as possible. And 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 these companies are really struggling because they are falling behind their competitors who are able to go much faster, who are able to do things with uh, less uh, less effort apparently, and able to get better market fit because they've completely changed. The the the, the, the companies in front have taken 
a very different approach, which is very small changes, tested, a really strong focus on testability, on operability, these kind of properties of the software, optimizing for ability to change rather than just pushing out a big long feature list. And so I think that that's been a big change in 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 the UK and around the world. Basically, is the way we think about doing this thing called software is is has has really um, there are there are new patterns which were really really successful, but not not every company has really understood that that's the way to go. This is a bit of a clunky segue, but speaking of big changes, um, we like <laughs> this podcast we like to talk about people's careers. And in 2014, I know you started your own business at, at, at a certain point, but but in 2014, mm. you decided to start your own consultancy, uh, if I've got the timeline right. Yep. Uh, what what led you to do that? That's a big, that's a big decision. So at the time, um, this was when uh, the, the DevOps uh, movement was still fairly, feels uh, still fairly new. So I attended one of the one of the first DevOps days events. It was actually in uh, Hamburg back in 20, 20- T10. Uh, I gave a quick uh, lightning talk there. So that was only one year after kind of the whole DevOps thing really kicked off. Um, so it had been going a, f- a few years, and I've, I've been working for um, a couple of different companies in London at the time. Um, but we decided, I decided actually it, the, the market was kind of right for um, to to for me to like have a go of loan, basically just to. To see, to see if it could work. Uh, it also coincided with a move, uh, uh, moving house from uh, from London to Leeds, where I now live. So it was a nice opportunity to kind of just uh, have a have a clean break. Yeah. Was there any particular reason to to, to leave London? Uh, I know that it's. Um, I lived there for a few years myself, mm. uh, and it can uh, it can it's a very exciting place, but it can also famously kind of wear wear on one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so London's great, and um, there's so much opportunity, so so many uh, amazing things to do. Um, I appreciate living here. The air is cleaner. I can reach uh, seven different national parks within uh, within a day, so I can get out there and do go walking and and be in the be in the open air. Um, and this is kind of where I grew up, so I know it quite well. So it was it was nice too. It, it, it was a great time in London. I was there for ten years, um, and uh, but I'm, I, I love living where I do now. Fantastic. Um, and actually, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. So you've um, you founded the London Continuous Delivery Meetup Group, which has thousands of members. Um, yep. How did that How did that come about, and why do you think it became so popular? So I founded that uh, back in 2012. Um, or co-founded. So I, I was giving a talk at uh, an event called Web Perf Days, which was associated with Velocity, the Velocity Conference uh, from O'Reilly um, at the time. And there, there was, it was taking place in London. And uh, I did a talk on um, how continuous delivery is shaping software architecture. This was at the place I was working at the time. So I was talking about things like a focus on deployability, a focus on uh, detecting problems, a focus on testing, things like this. Um, and anyway, the room was packed. The room was absolutely packed. It was, it was, there were people like who couldn't even get in the room. It was so full. And so I thought, oh, that's really interesting. People seem to want to know about continuous delivery. Um, of course, a book called Continuous Delivery by Jez Humble and Dave Farley had been published two years before. So it's still fairly recent. It was probably less than two years between the publication of the book and my, um, and my talk at the time. Um, so, so I just asked, I just asked people at the end of the talk, um, look, if anyone wants to, uh, you know, meet after meet meet me after the after the session and, and talk about maybe doing something around continuous delivery in London, then let me know. 
Um, so um, we, we there was a, a chap, Dave, who, who who came and had a chat, and we decided, well, let, let's make a go of it and let's see what happens. Um, so I was I was running that meetup group for for seven years, well, seven eight years. Um, I've actually just handed it over um, to some folks from a company called Engineer Better, who um, have been really good supporters of that and. Um, and the conference, Pipeline Conference, which kind of came out of the meetup group. So Pipeline Conference, we, we ran from 2014 to 2018. Um, and that was kind of created and founded and run by people who, who were involved in the London Continuous Delivery Meetup Group. I think I think it's probably the, the group. The, the group was an amazing experience. There's so many good people I met there. I'm so grateful to have, have had the opportunity to to work with all those people and, and to be able to um, hear what they had to say and so on. And it was, it, was a, it was a really great community around it. I think one of the reasons why it worked so well is because we um, avoided uh, a focus on tools. We did have some talks about tools when it was appropriate, but we avoided it just becoming about, hey, here's here's 1.7 version, version 1.7 of this tool, and oh look, here's 1.8, and look all the new features it's got. So we avoided that kind of um, that kind of thing, which you know is fine and useful, but um, we made sure we had a, a kind of broader appeal. So we had talks on product ownership, we had talks on testing and testability, we had talks on, you know, version control and branching, uh, the, the whole the whole range of different kind of practices. It was more of a practice-based thing. Um, so it appealed to quite a wide range. And we moved around different offices, uh, so different companies, we moved around London uh, each month. Uh, so we got to, we got to, sh we got to see uh, lots of different locations. And we got to kind of, um, I guess, partly promote quite a lot of different uh, organizations different companies as, as part of that. And um, uh, just, just for those listening who might not know, what, what is, uh, thank you for sharing, sharing the story. Um, uh, yep. what, what is continuous? If you could explain what continuous delivery is, because this is another sort of big, big change in the way things are done, basically. Yep. Uh, so continuous, continuous, continuous delivery as defined by DSM Day Farley in their book, uh, 2010, is reliable release, reliable software releases through build, test and deployment automation. Um, quite often people think continuous delivery is just about pushing uh, code to live when, when we're done. But it turns out in order to do that effectively, we have to actually think about a whole lot of other things. We have to think about kind of team ownership of software. We have to think about our, um, our version control practices. We have to think about how often we're merging our code with other people, a um, whole lot of other kind of practices and kind of uh, inter-team um team interactions and, and, and individual interactions between people to make this stuff work really well. Um, and I, what's interesting about the continuous delivery book is I'm still waiting to find some practices that Jess and Dave recommended. I'm still waiting to find some practices that no longer apply, but I can't find any. Like I, I'm always looking how it was a great book in that sense. Like they, they, they made sure it wasn't too technology specific. It was really fo focused on kind of fundamentals with some good examples. Um, but I mean, there's some new stuff that's come along since 2010, obviously, particularly in terms of things like container orchestration, cloud and things. But 
um, the fundamentals are absolutely sound. So it's, 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 it was really useful to kind of have that as a focus because it, it effectively is it's sort of perpetually useful as a set of techniques, practices. Yeah, it's, it's, a really, it's really interesting to think about how aspects of our lives have changed because of this. I mean, you know, in the, in the old days, you know, for example, if you were making a, a product like um, Excel, you code, 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 test, 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 and then you print, in the old days, discs, you know, uh, yep. and then you wrap them in plastic and cardboard and you ship them out and then people install it on their computer and that's the product um, mm. until you buy a new version. But nowadays, uh, it, and it's not just the things that we use on our computers or phones, uh, it's even our cars. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to own a Tesla, you know, and the, that, that get updated all the time. And it's not just, mm. the updates aren't just always new features. It's like keeping up and just making it continue to work, making things continue to work with the changes happening in the world around whatever the product or service is. And the theory and the management and team practices that have to exist in order to enable that mm. uh, is a really fascinating subject just on its own. So at, at Conflux, your current company, it says on the homepage that for you, digital technology is viewed as a, quote, uh, organizational sensing mechanism, end quote. And I think that, I mean, that's a great, that's sort of, a, it's probably, a, people are probably recalling from earlier in an interview when we talked about, you know, mm. you know things in factories being able machines and factories having sense internal sensing and how that can work but but you 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 do a lot of work at the organizational level um and this all that's just such a fascinating idea and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to think of an organizational sensing mechanism and how it informs the work that you do with companies from multinationals to startups sure so i think this comes from my um i think this this comes from a combination of kind of my my um my background in, in music and I mean, I, I, I sing in choirs and I play, I play the trumpet, I'm learning the trombone, uh, various things like this. I, and so I've, I've got a very strong sense of having to listen to other people. Like when you're playing in a band or an orchestra or a choir or whatever, you, there's, there's a very strong sense in which you've got to listen carefully as well as deliver what your, um, deliver your part. If you like play your part. Um, but I think that's combined with my, um, the um, the study that I did um, that we talked about before in neuroscience, obviously, so neuroscience is all about the brain, but, but the brain needs uh, sense organs to function. So that's partly why the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the ears are very close to the brain is precisely because the, the shortest path between the sense organs and, and, and the brain means that um, the information gets there much more quickly and therefore can be processed more quickly. Um, and... The way I kind of see things is is organizations that I kind of see it as if uh, or, that many organizations are almost like a kind of like blind wombat or one of these creatures that, that can't really see and can't really hear properly. They're just kind of stumbling around in their environment, not really understanding what's going on, whereas the organizations are really able to move very quickly through their environment. Um, when I say environment, I mean the kind of the, the kind of commercial environment, the world in which we're, we're working. So they're not physically moving necessarily, although many uh, many organisations do have kind of lots of physical moving parts. But you can see it conceptually as you, the organisation sitting in an environment. If it if it doesn't if it's not bringing in sensory data about its context, so if it's not listening to to Twitter and and Facebook, if it's not listening to sales data and kind of um, you know, website traffic and traffic analytics, Google Analytics or whatever. It's not listening to that stuff and understanding how consumers are interacting. Um, if if it's not um, 
if the organization is not kind of doing incremental sort of software delivery and testing what users actually want to uh, what the, testing the features that users actually interact with and, and testing which things actually work if it's if an organization is just blindly just kind of stumbling forward then uh, it, it's acting as if it is it's acting as if it's effectively um just knocking into things as a kind of like blind wombat would do in its environment. So the organizations are much more nimble, much more able to kind of uh, move around and, and, and avoid crashing into things, crashing into kind of problems like GDPR or crashing into problems like um, um, whatever Brexit or, 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 um, or some privacy um, legislation. Then these are, the, these are the organizations that are bringing in kind of lots of digital data uh, into their organization and, and acting on it quickly. They've got dashboards, they've got analytics, they've got uh, teams close to the data who are then able to make adjustments and, and changes to the software they're building very, very, very rapidly, which seems magic to these old kind of blind wombat companies because they don't, they, they, we've got the same number of people, we've got the same level of investment, but what they don't have is effectively eyes, eyes and ears and noses and, 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 and so on, antenna, if you like, at giving them this kind of sensory input. Um, I've got a question or two about stumbling around in Brexit to ask you in a uh-huh. couple of minutes. But, um, uh, but, but uh, just on that note, so you're talking about all this, we've talked about sensing just in, in machines and in, mm-hmm. now, now in organizations. But one thing you also talk about is, uh, and this goes, I'm sure, to your neuroscience, your interest in neuroscience and your background in that study, you, you also talk about cognitive load. Uh, which is, comes down to the individual and the team. And, and you know, for, I, I hadn't put this together, but I'm thinking about, you know, your interest in, you know, computers and sort of drawing on memory and things like that. And humans mm-hmm. have limits. We have these limits to how much w- information we can be managing uh, in our working memory. And this can actually be part of a management tactics or strategy to think about, like, you know, if I've got a team of, say, X, X number of people and they're working on this type of project, there's only so much that they can be kind of crunching. Yep. At, at, at a particular time. Can you talk yep. a little bit about that? What is, what is cognitive load and how do you manage that? So cognitive load was defined uh, in, in this context by, uh, by a person called John Sweller back in 1998. And there's, there's, the, the cognitive load is, is, the, um, is the, uh, the, the amount of stuff, if you like, that, that, that we can, uh, the amount of information we can hold in our working memory when we're doing a task. And there's three different kinds. There's um, intrinsic, which is kind of fundamental things about the problem where we're working on. So, so in the case of computers uh, programming, that might be um, uh, let's give an example. So, um, just something about um, Java syntax or something. If we write or, or Ruby syntax, something like that is there. I, I've I, I've 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 um, so I absorbed that, and it's, it, that's just something in the background I just have to work with. Um, there's um, uh, there's extraneous cognitive load, which is things that effectively uh, have nothing to do with the problem I'm working on, but which get in the way. So an example in that context would be, oh, how is it that I deploy this software again in this context? Something that's not nothing to do with the business problem, that's a kind of distraction. Uh, so we want to minimize that. We want to minimize the extraneous cognitive load because that's, there's no value add to that. And the, the third kind is, is the uh, germane, what's called germane, which is useful, useful cognitive load, which, which I, I actually need in order to help me work on the problem. So if I'm writing, um, if I'm writing some sort of uh, bank uh, account 
reconciliation algorithm, something like that. I've got to keep that stuff in my head, otherwise I can't actually do the task in hand. So the idea is to minimize the extraneous cognitive load. We've got to have the intrinsic, at least more space for the germane cognitive load. So if I can, um, if I can think of a metaphor, say for not necessarily writing software, but just writing uh-huh. in general, it might be yep. like knowing the language would be intrinsic. Using my writing tool, like my fountain pen or my quill or my keyboard would perhaps be the extrinsic. And then the germane would be knowledge about the subject that I'm something like that i'm actually writing about okay yeah 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 something like this and and obviously we want to be focused on as much as possible on the germane aspect of cognitive cognitive load because that's that's where the the if you like the competitive advantage is if we're in in a in a in a for-profit company or, or that that's where the that that's where we can give we can produce the best outcome for um for like citizens if we're working on some kind of government focused um system and and the this, this becomes really quite important um, because the um, if 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 a team is asked to take ownership of a piece of software um, that is way too complicated that is that has way too high a cognitive load for that team then there's no way they can effectively own it. There's no way they can realistically uh, deploy and and, and uh, test and uh, operate that piece of software um, as a team because there's just too much to think about. And therefore, they will start to feel uh, unsafe, if you like. They'll feel like unable to, to actually own it properly. Um, the speed of deployments will probably go down or the, numbers of problem, the, the, the number of problems in production will go up because they're not actually able to kind of um, effectively own um, all of the aspects of the stuff that they're building. So um, so I'm actually just writing, I'm writing a talk, uh, I'm writing some slides for a talk actually uh, next week, which I guess by the time the podcast goes out will, will probably have happened anyway. Um, and if we start from the viewpoint of, of needing to make sure that cognitive load is not exceeded for a team, this is a different way of thinking about the size of software systems. So in the past, we've had big monoliths where we kind of deploy all stuff together into one big kind of big big system that all gets deployed together. Uh, there's been a movement in the last sort of 10 years or so towards microservices where we make a lot where the focus is on very small, a uh, very fine-grained set of, of, of services and bits of software. Um, but I think a different way to look at this is if we have a team that's responsible for a segment of the system, as long as the software that, that they're working on does not get bigger than the collective cognitive load of that team, then we're fine. Because if the team's still able to own it, then they're still able to assess the complexity. They're still able to assess the risk. They're still able to do what's necessary to get that deployed in the right sort of way. And so it's a different. Uh, it's, it's an angle that that um, I guess strikes me as fairly natural, coming for, with with a bit of a background in, in neuroscience and, and cybernetics and things. But I think for other people. It seems like there's not that many organizations really so far that have, have, have really considered this. There are some. So, for example, um, the telecoms um, provider Twilio has explicit, is explicitly considers the cognitive load on teams that use it in software internally. And, and they've, they've spoken about this quite a bit, how they, they actually kind of assess how difficult some of their internal systems are, or services and systems are to use, and they they drive down the cognitive load on on the on the um, on the kind of product teams expressly around that because they know that that if the cognitive load gets too high, those teams will 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 not be able to build and run and own those those software 
those software systems. So it's starting to be a thing. So it's a very different angle about thinking about how big different parts of the system should be. But where we need to run, where we need to go very quickly and safely, it makes sense to uh, explicitly consider a, a maximum amount of cognitive load that we um, expect a team to be able to handle. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really, it's just such a, I mean, we've, we've, we've kind of got to move on, but it's, it's just a really fascinating topic. I mean, to, to take kind of human, we, we sort of, I think often when we're, you know, conducting business, it's often an instinct to be kind of optimistic, I suppose, but to take into account these fundamental human limitations, mm. you know, I'm sure it's something that like special forces do or something like that, right? Like, you know, like literally like how long can you stay awake? You know, yep. what, what, what happens? I mean, if you use stimulants to stay awake even longer, but you know, you can actually kind of measure how performance starts mm. to change mm. over time mm. and to, to think about these kinds of things in the context of running machines uh is just really really fascinating but 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 uh m moving on a little bit um so one thing i wanted to ask you about was i don't know how much you can talk about it but i saw on linkedin that you recently worked on a contract for the uk's home office to work on technology related to immigration uh, and of course immigration has been a huge topic in the news uh in Europe and in, in North America uh, and in, I mean, many places in the past few years in obvious ways I probably don't need to really go into detail about. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work you were doing for the home office or if you can't talk that much about it, just what you see, how you see new technology might be used to manage information by governments regarding things like immigration in the future. Um, so I was, uh, for most of 2018, I was engineering lead at um at the immigration technology division inside the home office yes um so we were um it was it was quite a big program there's lots of different teams um and one of the things we need to do was to kind of bring in um uh, a coordinated approach to um engineering standards so the, the kind of the kind of coordination at the at the across multiple teams so um What's going to be our approach to deployment? What's going to be our approach to logging? What's the, what are the detailed low-level um, ways in which we're going to use logging so that we have the best outcome for the um, for the what we call the live service teams, the people who are actually looking at the live systems, if, kind of like ops, if you like, ops people. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of the stuff we're doing there was around um, considering the what you might call the operator experience the experience of, of teams who are kind of running the systems, what do they need to see? Um, how do they need to see it? What's, what's actually, what do they need to do, for example, if, if in this particular case, so we're working on systems that were, that were involved in processing, um, yeah, processing visas, processing, processing immigration applications, that kind of thing. And if one of those um, applications got stuck, then, you know, someone's case would be uh, delayed effectively for, for days or, or, or hours or days. And, and that, that can be, you know, kind of quite upsetting. And, and it, it sometimes needs a, it needs, it needed the, the, the a kind of metaphorical um, prod in the machine or kind of um, something needed to be reset. And so the ops people would, would, would have some of their responsibilities around kind of looking to see why things have got stuck, if you like. And, um, and so, so like in, like in, in, in many, many situations, many different organizations, not just government, but in, in, in all sorts of organizations, the, the experience of the operators uh, is not front and foremost of, uh, of the minds of people who are kind of specifying what needs to happen. They're thinking about the, the primary users of the system. And actually, though, um, for, for, to, to make things really, really effective and operationally, we actually need to think about um, 
what these kind of live service or ops people need to do and see how they need to search for stuff, how they need to diagnose things. So we did a lot of work around that. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. That's relevant to the um, a question I'll be asking you in just a couple of minutes about your book, Team Guide to Software Operability, mm -hmm. uh, where you talk about how you know keeping in mind when you're when you're sort of building something, keeping in mind how it's actually going to operate in the real world. Mm. And then and then there are people that are operating it in the real world is really important. Um, but just before we get to that, so mm -hmm. um, the inevitable Brexit question. Uh, uh -huh. So um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on um, Brexit and perhaps in the context of the, the tech sector, which is huge and various thing in the UK that, you know, covering all kinds of things. But what's what's your sense of things that how, how do people in the tech sector in general feel about feel about Brexit? Are they worried about, you know, do you, do you hear worries about recruitment? But just I don't I don't want to frame it too closely. Just, you know, what mm. what are your thoughts on? on that? Um, so I think I think it's um, I think there's a whole lot of different many different strands to this. Um, I mean, my personal view is that it's 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 going to be hugely detrimental. It already has been detrimental to to lots of industries in the UK, and it'll continue to be that. Um, I think it's hugely misguided um, for lots of reasons. But um, I think one, I think some of the things that Brexit will do is drive. Um, it will drive technological innovation in a few in a few different areas. Uh, agriculture is one, because whereas in the past uh, 40 years, we've relied increasingly on uh, lower cost um, agricultural laborers from other parts of the EU, all, almost all of that labor has disappeared. There's no other, there is food, there is fruit and vegetables rotting in the fields in Britain because there's no one to pick it. And so what that's driving is uh, increased automation of, of fruit picking um, Technology is driving investment in vertical farming. So these are these are um, you know, large kind of warehouses where we've got uh, plants, crops grown in kind of almost like data centers. It looks like a data center, an old style kind of big, big, big warehouse thing with um, multiple robot kind of gantries and um, fruit picking things inside inside the factory. Um, so it's definitely driving investment in uh, agricultural automation. It will drive invest. It'll drive investment in technologies around healthcare as well because um, we're, we have been um, kind of sadly, I guess, reliant on uh, workers from EU and other countries in, in our healthcare system. Um, but uh, many of those people have left as well recently, so that will also drive, um, drive innovation in the, the, the healthcare technology space, along with things like um, um, automation, um, automotive, so uh, cars and things, because our car industry is now basically dead since Brexit. So um, there will be a need to drive innovation in other areas too. There could be a real opportunity. I'm trying to put the best spin on this as possible. There could be a real opportunity to to avoid, uh, to, 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 to reduce car usage and look at other forms of transport, which are much more sustainable and uh, environmentally friendly, avoid pollution and things. So things like electric bikes, there are actually some manufacturers in the UK, and electric bikes are really taking off. So these, these are kind of pedal bikes, but they've got a, a battery as well, and so you can. Uh, it's much easier to kind of climb a hill on these things. Obviously, that it's easy, fairly easy to make an electric bike compared to making a car. So I think, um, although I think there's a uh, there's going to be a huge amount of damage done, I think there will actually be an innovation that's relevant to people working in software. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing those thoughts. You brought up some things that I, I mean, I haven't thought about before, but it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. The, uh, when you talk about, you know, the sort of, I mean, this is something people talk about in the American context as well, but, you know, people, for example, losing jobs in car factories at the same time as fruits and vegetables are rotting on the vine. Uh, And it says a lot about, you know, the kind of work that people feel they should be doing and the kind of work they feel other people Mm, definitely should be doing and there's this really interesting i mean it's I, I there's this really interesting kind of internal contradiction to the logic of nationalism of narrow let's say narrowly construed kind of nationalism around issues of of labor and when that when people's forms of work get tied up with their identity technology poses to some people this incredibly exciting opportunity and to other people this catastrophe yeah, and these contradictions are woven into the kind of problems that we're seeing in lots of countries mm. all over the place, right? So, mm. you know, and particularly with respect to automation, it's reminding me of something that when I uh, first lived in London, I had a friend who had a roommate, and we were—he was from um, actually he was from near Reading—and uh, we were <laughs> watching um, the news, and there was um, a news story about a bunch of long-term unemployed steel workers who were at a football match for their local football team. And uh, by which I mean soccer to any North American. Yep. <laughs> uh, and um, and they engaged in some, you know, a, a racist riot. And I sort of took the opportunity to ask my friend's roommate, you know, what, you know, I, I, I just sort of put it naively on purpose. But, you know, why, why, what's going on here? Why are they, why are they doing this? And he said, well, you need to understand, you know, Thatcher closed down the steel mills and, you know, they've been out of work since. And so they're full of resentment. And I said, well, why didn't they do something else? And he looked at me like I was the biggest idiot in the world and said, Len, you need to understand they're steel workers. And it really struck me how, you know, you know, it's the sort of thing I would have been able to give the right answer to if someone had asked me the question, but it was only, you know, really having it dri- driven home into kind of my heart, as it were, that, you know, people can become really attached to a way of living uh, that involves their work. And it might be like a factory job where their their dad worked and they got their job because they're, I've been thinking in, you know, gender <clears throat> terms here in factory, but, you know, you know, we, we have this issue in, in parts of Canada as well, where like it could be generations since the main breadwinner in the family actually had to go out and seek their own job because it was always dad made a call to the union. And, and, and there's something very unsettling about certain types of change that that can make people feel like there's something they're losing when Mm -hmm. in fact, what they had was kind of very tenuous and artificial in the first place. I think there's there's some there's some interesting kind of green shoots of of optimism if you like around some of this stuff, particularly with um, some of the um, some of the innovations in in kind of really micro small computers like the Raspberry Pi and Arduino and um, these kind of things where they're they're obviously physically very small. They literally fit in your hand. So they're kind of not threatening in that sense. And um, a lot of the coding... um, A lot of the the coding courses that that have been developed to, to suit these kind of devices... Are incredibly accessible. In fact, um, so I was involved. Uh, one of our partners uh, uh, um, through through Conflux, um, uh, the Foundation for Digital Creativity, is based based in here in Leeds in the UK, and they've they've done a lot of work with um, with younger people, but not just younger people, um, with with uh, with other groups as well. Um, so what, some of the some of the kind of coding. Um, 
like kind of training courses and things, it doesn't even involve typing typing out code. It involves uh, um, using kind of kind of drag and drop and configuration things that are, are at a slightly higher level. So like the concept of an if statement, the concept of a loop, the concept of uh, a decision. Um, but kind of without actually having to type it as, as as a stream of characters, you kind of construct the algorithm on screen using kind of drag and drop blocks. And actually, I, I was skeptical at first, but actually it was it was actually really useful because you're thinking about the, the fundamentals, you're thinking about the flow of logic rather than actually the typing. And you don't have to worry about the syntax. It generates Python or something behind the scenes, right? So it actually then runs proper code. Um, but as a, as a much more accessible way of getting into software, it was really powerful. And, and the, the, the kids who are learning this stuff are doing amazing things now. This, this, there was a kind of gap in the like 90s and 2000s where this kind of stuff really wasn't available. Whereas now we've got kind of computers that are much more kind of accessible to a much wider range of people. There's even, uh, they're, they're taking this kind of stuff into into kind of public libraries and even like old people's homes and things like this and getting like kind of like 85 year old uh, kind of grandmas to, to kind of write some code. And it's amazing to see how, how accessible this stuff is. So I've, I think it's kind of an interesting time that where we actually will be able to enable a huge range of people who are not necessarily techies, but they want to do something useful with computers. So one person I was talking to, she she does uh, textiles and she wants to dye, she wants to color, she wants to dye wool a certain color, but the, the wool dyeing process needs to needs the, 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 the liquid to be like a certain temperature for a certain time. She can write her own algorithm using like a Raspberry Pi or Arduino to test this and then you know, sound an alarm when when the when the te- when the fluid's at the right temperature, and then she, so she can do her own wool dyeing. She just she doesn't want to be a programmer. She's a textile person, but she's going to use a computer. She's going to program it in order to help her do something. And I think that's that that's the key to 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 getting uh, to 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 kind of broadening out the the the, the use of kind of computers and things to a wide range of people is. Let's not obsess about getting people to be trained up as programmers. Let's get people unaf- to be unafraid of writing a bit of code to help them do something else. I think they, 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 there could be a real opportunity for um, a huge expansion of kind of how we see and use computers in this kind of context. Uh, it's really interesting. I think we could probably talk about this for <laughs> all day. No, I, 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 but you're, you're, I find it fascinating. Yeah, no, I, well, I mean, one thing that I, I was just really sort of thinking about when you were talking is that, the, I mean, the way what people think work is. And, and for some people, and this, this, you know, goes back to, you know, the, you know, the origins of, you know, writing. But, you know, my, my brother, who's an English professor, has a joke that, like, if you see someone with their chin in their hand, like, you know, Rodin's uh-huh. famous statue... Some people look at, wow, that guy's working really hard. And other people look at it and see that guy's doing nothing. And he's just resting. And um, to some people, you know, the idea that, you know, thinking and writing, you know, which is what programming is, doesn't seem like work at all. And it doesn't feel useful. Whereas um, uh, moving, I mean, it sounds kind of, to put things in these basic terms, but like moving things around and putting things from one place, building a structure uh, mm. feels like work. You know, this thing was over here and now it's over there. And this, these things were just a pile of something. And now they're a, an orderly structure of something uh, that, that can feel to some people that can feel like real in a mm. way that, that the kind of typing 
typing doesn't, which is why, you know, we have this whole language about yep. like how, I mean, of course, there's nothing ghostly going on when you're interacting with a computer. Uh, but we use terms like virtual to describe mm -hmm. the things that yep. we do with it because we have, I mean, generally speaking, because there's there's just something kind of, I mean, I, not to go way off into the philosophical weeds, but there's something kind of uncanny about the invisible work that's done by a computer yep. compared yep. to the kind of mechanical work that we, we and it, you know, it's interesting we, we talk about nowadays we say technology to mean computers, mm. uh, you know, when, of course, a chimney is a form of technology. Uh, policing is a form of technology, and but but what we see is real, and what we don't are sort of seem to be very very deeply ingrained in us. And for some people, what you're talking about, you know, being trained as a programmer just sounds like, oh my God, that's the last thing I ever want to do. You know, it just yep. seems kind of fake and unreal. And and uh, by by making the way you you program more kind of tangible, uh, that might actually really. Um, mm serve to make it seem more like real work to people but not to hijack this too much just just moving on <laughs> so you brought up you brought up operability and so uh, just one or two questions about uh, your book team guide to software operability so mm. this is a really interesting uh book uh where you and your co-authors talk about how um quote you should uh, treat software operations as a high skill value add activity not support tasks end quote yep uh, and i like i like this idea you talk about how often companies will kind of devalue the operational side of things and call them non-functional requirements as opposed to operational features. And you can just see the kind of like, I don't know, the kind of non-technical executive going like, why doesn't our website have this button working yet? And you're mm. like, well, you know, because of this blah, 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 is the ops stuff. And people really need to think about that as features rather than just blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this this is based on the work that, that we've been doing um, for a long time, really. Um, I remember when when I my the first kind of logging system that I I, I put into place was for um, uh, a long time ago. Now, back in two thousand two, two thousand three, I was writing software for um, the oil and gas industry, where we were taking data from sensors that were at the bottom of the oil well. So this was like hundreds of degrees Celsius, and and, and many many you know crazy amount of pressure and so we had to then grab that data and um, remove all the errors and then display it um, and um, and so we had to log quite consistently and carefully what was going on so that we could because you once you put a sensor at the bottom of an oil well you can't take it out it's cheaper to drill, drill a new oil well than it is to take the sensor out and and and, uh, and and replace it or to repair it. So it's, it, you're talking about kind of an expensive situation. So I actually kind of developed some logging, which was really robust and resilient. And the software itself had to be super kind of resilient so that it wouldn't crash halfway through the data collection, this kind of thing. And so I've, I, I guess I, I've sort of had to um, work in situations where, where kind of the operational aspect of the software was, was always, was always kind of front and foremost. Um, because of either because of the, the the sensitivity or because of the 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 cost of of, of getting it wrong, um, and um, then, then a few kind of few years later, I was the one of the kind of lead software architects on on a big system for the London Stock Exchange. We were building out one of one of the um, not their primary trading system, but their their kind of secondary system. 
and we, we made sure to put kind of operational concerns to the fore in, in that one. Ten years later, so I caught up with a, a colleague of mine who was working with at the time, caught up with him actually uh, just last year. Ten years after we launched it, the software is still running. And so the, the operators, 10 years worth of, of, I mean, obviously it had been modified and so on and, and improved, but the, the foundations were, were still the foundations we put in place uh, back in 2008. Um, so that kind of, that kind of, um, that kind of brought it home to me how, how this focus on kind of operational aspects of software um, can help organizations to um, get the most out of, out of the software they're building. So the, the, the software is not falling over all times, so that it's it's easy to diagnose what what what's going on if something if there is a problem. Um, we we we've taken a team first approach with the, this this team guide to software operability and it and its and its uh, companion books as well. So testability, business metrics, and releasability, because we want to we wanted to um, we wanted to demonstrate and share some practices which work well in a team context. It's not just about an individual developer or tester learning some skills. It's here's how to do some stuff at a team level. Here's how to share information. Here's how to co-discover, um, in this case, co-discover some kind of operational requirements, co-discover how to define whether the software is ready for service, these kind of things. And um, it's it's proving it's proving um, really valuable to, to lots of different people. So we were, we were at a... Um, um, we were at uh, a conference, Continuous Lifecycle, in London uh, a few months ago, and we brought with us some big um, kind of tabletop-sized printed sheets with some kind of like operational questions and things like this on. Uh, every single sheet was taken by people because they, they heard about this stuff and came, came to the stand and took them away. They realized the value of actually having the entire team sitting around the, a, a, a table and um, discussing in detail um, the, all the aspects of operational readiness that, that this this big sheet um, covered. So, if we're we're finding that this kind of team focus on on oper, operability and 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 similar aspects to be to, to be really resonating with um, with people in organisations who who are who are struggling with some of these things. Yeah, it's really interesting. You write in the book about how um, most you know even 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 books that are about teams are kind of written to the individual. Um, yeah. Uh, whereas this book is actually written written sort of for to be read by a team. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Which is yeah. just really interesting. Um, yeah. One thing actually I wanted to talk to you about is um, Conway's Law. Mm. Uh, so I know this is a bit of a this is a big topic, but if you could talk, maybe spend a couple of minutes explaining what Conway's Law is, because this is a very it's a very important concept. So when I first came across Conway's Law, I think it was through Alan Kelly, a UK-based uh, software person who's been who's lots of experience and um, uh, gives great talks. So Conway's Law being the um, this kind of mirroring that occurs between uh, the communications between parts of the organization and the kind of system that the organization builds. So the way that Mel Conway uh, described it in 1968 was basically a constraint on the kind of software systems or the kind of systems that an organization can build. Um, um, the original 1968 paper by Conway is actually really, really interesting. There's loads of stuff in there. And a lot of people don't actually read the full paper. It's definitely worth digging that one out. It's called um, How Do Committees Invent? And there's, lo there's loads and loads of gems in there. Um, what what actually is a really interesting thing about Conway's law is that it's actually a proper it's a it's a it's a really strategic limitation on the organisation. 
So uh, in the paper, Mel Conway talks about um, it being the, the, this 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 mirroring force being um, a constraint on the solution search space. So an organization that is set up in one particular way with, with communication between teams or between different people in, in one particular format almost certainly will not discover certain kind of solutions. It will not discover certain kind of software architectures. It will not discover certain kind of ways of doing stuff just because of the way it's communicating uh, within the organization. And that's, that's, a, that's an exec level limitation on the organization. When we're doing this kind of knowledge work, when we're when we're when we're in a fast moving, rapidly changing context, um, using software to to give us that kind of leverage that enables us to adapt things very quickly, because obviously that's one of the main advantages of software. It's not just about processing information; it's about the fact that we can adapt it very 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 easily. Um, then, then your organization design. Can, can constrain the kind of things that you're actually able to do as an organization. And that, that should set alarm bells ringing for any kind of exec or C-level person in an organization because they might be trying to do certain things, but their current organization design is, is actively constraining their, or actively limiting the likelihood of them actually being able to come up with a, a decent um, system or solution to, to a particular market problem. And so when you say organizational design, uh, just to sort of drill down a little bit, do you mean like, for example, um, I'm thinking like, and then I think I'm, I'm sort of recalling a, a talk that I watched you give on YouTube, I think, where you talked about how there were sort of different financial incentives for employees came in the form of not just um, salary, but also kind of bonuses. And these bonuses were linked to, you know, if you did 10 tickets in a week, or mm -hmm. something like that on the support desk, you'd get a bonus. But then there was some incompatible type of bonus, you know, that was doled out to another different team. And if, I guess I'm just sort of trying to think about this at the theoretical level. If you adopt, if you construct your organization, if your organization is designed around bonuses for reaching targets, there might be certain types of solutions that your organization just can't. Mm, no, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Do. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and and likewise, if if your organisation is um, is very hierarchical and needs information to flow up and down a kind of permission tree, so that it hits the person who, who's the, who's highest in the organisation, and and people lower down can't make decisions, then um, again you, you'll be limited in the kind of the kind of solutions that, that you can then you can come up with. Um, lots of organisations more recently have been have sort of found um, that a really effective sort of template, if you like, for, for the design of their organization is to have um, sort of smallish cross-functional teams, uh, so a mixture of skills inside the team, uh, up to about between five and nine people, maybe something like this. And they're focused on one specific part of the of the business domain, so it might be accounts versus payments versus uh, orders, or something more specific than that. If, it, if it's a larger organisation, and this team, one of these teams has basically all the skills it needs to take to go from idea to realisation of the idea in working software. Um, now it gets a little bit more complicated when we've got hardware and and the real world involved because it becomes really difficult to get a, a cross-functional team that can that can do both web so cloud software and you know uh, physical hardware design. But that's kind of a, a a slightly more advanced sort of topic. But generally speaking, if we can get a team that can take an an idea through to to 
that idea being being produced and running, um, they're more involved, they're more engaged. They're also closer to the uh, the information. That team sees how stuff runs in production. Effectively, that team then starts to become that organizational sensing mechanism. It starts to become a little bit like eyes and ears. They're so close to how that stuff is running that they're able to then get that, get that information and kind of bring it back into their design, build, run process uh, and effect change really, really quickly. And this, this is this kind of model is sort of backed up by um, by recommendations from, uh, for example, uh, Stanley McChrystal, who was a former general in the U.S. Uh, Army, who over the period of one of the Gulf Wars realised that they had to fundamentally change how the army worked. The U.S. Army that's changed from a very kind of command and control hierarchical thing to a much more kind of distributed um, kind of. Um, Control where the, where where intent was specified centrally, but then execution was 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 de, was devolved out, and this this seems to be an effective model for going quickly, safely, where where the world is changing rapidly and where we need to be able to respond to um, to, to what's out there. We can't predict what the world is going to be like in in even six weeks or or two weeks time. We need to we need to have devolved some of the decision making. Yeah, I've, I've, that's really interesting. I've read a little bit about about that, um, about how uh, instead of, you know, um, take that hill by doing X, Y, and Z, you send out a team by, uh, I mean, you know, of, of soldiers or Marines mm. or what have you and say, uh, take that hill, but you guys, you guys figure, figure out how to do it. You guys figure yeah, out yeah, how yeah. to do it yourself. Yeah. And so <laughs> there's this, there's this autonomy and empowerment that the team is given, but it's crucially, it has to be guided. By a mm-hmm. clearly communicated goal, goal, good uh, goal or intent, yeah, you goal or in, or intent or intent even a little yeah. bit more vague, yeah. but, you know. But it, it, this this the clarity of communication becomes even more. I mean, I was just actually interviewing someone who worked at Spotify um, mm. uh, just the other day. I was in, not not that he worked there that I was interviewing him just the other day, but this this idea that that um, the caught co- all this decentralized autonomy comes at a cost. You, there's some, you, there's a price you have to pay and the price you pay is communication. You have to pay a lot more. You have to put a lot more focus and thinking into how you communicate mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. have kind of decentralized autonomy mm-hmm. in this way. Uh, and on that note, uh, your latest book is internal tech conferences, which is all about yep. communicating and, and finding, uh, letting, letting organizations know how much they know uh, to some extent, uh, which you wrote with your, um, co-author Victoria Morgan Smith, who works uh, at the Financial Times. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that book. How did, how did it come about that you, you, you and Victoria decided it would be uh, worthwhile to write a book about running in, internal tech conferences for organizations? So this goes back uh, several years, I think five years or so, when we were both at a conference in London uh, and Victoria had done um, a lightning talk on her experience of running their first um, tech conference internally. And I had, at that time, I'd been running um, effectively the same kind of thing, internal tech conferences at the the company I was working for at the time. Um, And we we just got together and decided to kind of collaborate a bit. We wrote an article for uh, InfoQ on on exactly this internal tech, tech conferences. We interviewed a few other people from different organizations and kind of, compiled a, a kind of initial here's some ideas on, on, on how to do it based on our experience at the time um, and then fast forward to last year um, 
we realized there's a few more companies who, who are out there who had actually been doing this and 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 been writing about it and there've been some different ideas so we decided to um to kind of expand what we'd already written, expand our experience. I mean, since then, I'd run first, I'd, I'd run some more internal tech companies. I'd helped other people to do that as well. And Victoria had, had run several more years worth of, of, of these events at, uh, where she works at FT. And um, so it felt like the right time to do it. Um, and so we got some great case studies in there from, uh, from a few different organizations. And um, it was nice to be able to follow up on some of the early, uh, early material and 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 see what's changed um some of the technology has moved on as well since sort of 2014 so things like you know full screen video conferencing type technology is now basically ubiquitous i mean i'm talking to you across across an atlantic divide and it's perfect basically like it is it, the the quality is great so that's just an amazing enabler to bring to be able to kind of reach um, remote offices if you if you've got an internal uh, tech conference day and actually you want to bring in speakers from you know across the other side of the world it's basically doable now which which is which is an amazing really it's an amazing thing it's, it's, it's magic basically as far as i'm concerned um so it is it, there's some of the technologies moved on to, to an extent where um, we've got many we've got more opportunities for including more people in these kind of events yeah, it's it's really it's really fascinating. Uh, one of the one of the sort of themes of the of the book and then the whole the whole idea of having an internal tech conference is that you know often people end up being siloed kind of naturally within within companies, and this 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 has the effect that you know you can kind of um, be reinventing the wheel all the time, but it also means that people don't know what everybody else is doing, uh, and you don't really have a, you your sense of what your work is is all about what you do every day. But actually, you're part of a big organization that's doing all kinds of different mm. things and understanding that you're not just how the whole thing is operating, but that you're playing a role uh, that's useful in a particular way. And so is everybody else. And it all kind of mm. comes together that an internal tech conference can really help people understand think, what they're doing. Exactly. And I think I think it shows a good a good degree of organizational maturity when an organization actually decides to run one of these things because you're you're, you're doing lots of things. You are um, you're investing in people, individuals in terms of preparing a, a talk, pre preparing them to be a speaker. Um, you're investing in um, in different groups in the organisation because you're able to showcase what different groups have been doing. Um, you're also being honest as an organisation about how important certain things are. So you might say, "Hey, we've just built a brand new relational database." And then if you present that at an internal tech conference and someone, most people probably say, well, why didn't you just use MySQL or, or, or SQL Server or Postgres or Oracle or whatever? Maybe there's a great reason, but actually maybe you just wasted, you know, like many, 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 many years worth of people's time. And so it's a, it's a good kind of um, organizational sort of health check or, or – or, um, way of kind of validating what you're doing as an organization to 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 run one of these kind of events because you you have to be kind of you have to surface what's going on in different parts of the organization and um work out what what it is about what you're doing that's good and worth celebrating what it is that that maybe has been more difficult and you'll still want to share it because you want to bring that to the surface and get some feedback from people um you have to – the organization has to be um, mature enough or, or, or um, kind of transparent enough that people feel safe to be able to do that, that kind of sharing. So it, help, it can really help to raise, raise the game. Um, 
the organization where, where I where I ran these internal tech conferences, uh, what we did was every six months we ran a half-day event. And we actually invited everyone. So at the time, the organization was about 300 people in size. So everyone uh, was invited. So the technology was about technology team was about half that. But we invited like legal and HR and marketing and all the different these dif- different departments. And it was brilliant because we were able to kind of demonstrate what was inside this technology machine, if you like. And it really helps to build some bridges with with other parts of the organization. Uh, they really started to understand why it takes so long because you've got to do all this migration stuff. We've got to test the backups. We've got to you – know, physically, it takes like two days to, to move that data out of the data center. Oh, well, why can't we just use the cloud? Yeah, exactly. Let's use the cloud then. So it really helped to kind of open some eyes and, and, and get some buy-in to some of the stuff we were doing at the time. Um, so I think it can really, really help an organization to, to, to run internal tech conferences. It really helps an organization to raise its game, basically. It's, it's really interesting, too. Um, there's all this kind of high theory. Uh, but, you know, one of the themes of your work is that, you know, the operations, it, it all comes down to operations in the end. And <laughs> on that note, I, one of the great things about the book, too, is that, the, like, all of this great stuff only works if it works. Uh, yeah. On that yes. note, I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about the importance of food. <laughs> at conferences. Um, so Linda Rising, who is uh, is expert in organizational change, and she's she's written several books in, in this area. Uh, one of her patterns that she talks about is do food. So when, when you're trying to affect organizational change, make sure you do food. And that's because food brings people together. Um, it has to be good quality food. It can't, it can't be a few limp sandwiches. Uh, and some 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 um, some cups of you know fizzy pop. It has to it has to be it has to be like good food. It's worth spending on. People feel like they're 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 they've they've got something different, something that's worth eating. Um, uh, but there's actually been some studies. There've actually been some like academic scientific studies done on this stuff with with different groups of people, and the groups that had like cake or food or whatever performed significantly better than those without. And and so like e- even at just that level, you have to make sure that food is part of the mix. Um, but it brings people together. It's, it's, it's a nice way to make sure that people can mingle because it's a kind of neutral space um, over, over lunchtime. Um, if you're doing a full-day tech conference, internal tech conference, then the, the, the food can be a stimulation, kind of like a, act as a stimulation, uh, stimulation for um, like a, a wide range of different conversations at lunchtime, people mingling all together and, and, and talking about the morning events and, and talking about what might happen in the afternoon. So um, – it would be a big mistake if you're running a, an internal tech conference. It would be a big mistake to to uh, have no food. It'd be a big mistake to have poor food. You have to have food that, that people are going to remember that, that feels nice. So it feels like a special event. Yeah, and it needs to be uh, on, on a number of different levels. It needs to be seen as and in, as desirable and enjoyed. Uh, yeah, you know yeah. When, when people go yeah. and and so yeah. Uh, it's yeah it's it's really it's really interesting. Um, uh, just, just moving on to the the last part of the interview, uh, where we talk about your experience writing. Um, so you've you've uh, written a book with O'Reilly, I believe, uh, Continuous Delivery with Windows and .NET. Yeah. Um, and you're you're currently working on a book called Team Topologies: uh, Organizing Business and Technology Teams for Fast Flow, which will be coming out with IT Revolution Press. Uh, but uh, in addition to sort of your sort of um, conventional publishing books. You've also decided to uh, publish some books on LeanPub. And yep. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, why you decided to do that. So the first um, 
the first book that, that uh, I worked on through LeanPub was called Build Quality In. This is back in 2013, and we published it in early 2014, collection of, um, of DevOps and continuous delivery um, experience reports from, from around the world. And so I was one of the editors, along with Steve Smith. Um, and what attracted, what attracted us to the LeanPub platform was, uh, well, it was several things. Firstly, we could, uh, as techies, we could write we could write the book in Markdown, which is great uh, because that felt really natural. So we can collaborate in, in using using version control in Git, and then you know just push the changes, and it would trigger it trigger a build, and then we get the nice new PDF coming down through through uh, Dropbox. I mean, it was kind of at the, you know when I first came across it, I thought, wow, this is genius. This is like the, it's kind of the simplest mechanism that, that can actually work, and and it, and it still works really well. It um, so I, I it really appealed that. Um, the, the, the kind of the, the like, if you like the operational side, the kind of techie side behind it felt felt very nice. Um, uh, but actually, the the, the model, the Leanpub model of you know publish often and get feedback, um, also felt something that, that that tied in so closely to all the stuff we were doing. Like we're literally writing a book on continuous delivery. So let's use a publishing approach, which feels very similar. <laughs> so like it felt really kind, kind of important for us to actually. Um, to, to follow that model through uh, and, and to be able to, to do it like that kind of incrementally and get some feedback. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, and it's, it's been good since then to, uh, to, to use the platform because the, the support we get has been really great. Um, if like occasionally we'll, we'll find like a small problem with something and, and I'll kind of emailed in and then within like half an hour or so 30 minutes or something, get a response back saying, Oh yeah, we've, 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 we found that problem and, and we'll, we'll, it's, it's going to be fixed soon and it's fixed in a couple of days or whatever. So the, the kind of responsiveness as a, as a, I guess as a user or as an author or publisher on, on LeapUp has been awesome. Um, I, I can't imagine there's another platform that, that has that level of responsiveness uh, for, for digital publishing. I think it's really good. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for the kind words uh, and for that's sharing that story. That's really interesting. I mean, one of the one of the ways we've, you know, we've subconsciously we've decided to, you know, build LeanPub is to listen very closely to mm. what authors are saying. That doesn't mean do everything they want. But, exactly. but, you know, we treat we try to treat every kind of genuine signal as a problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that, that's kind of what makes it, it sort of makes support interesting. If, if, you know, for example, if you get to treat it as a puzzle that needs to be solved. Uh, and so, you know, if, if people are, this is just kind of, this is kind of norm, normal kind of startup stuff, but you know, if, if, if someone, if someone's found a bug, well, that's a bug, you know, try to fix it as quickly as you can, mm -hmm. but, you know, how then you treat it, but how did that bug, why did that bug occur in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, what's the deeper kind of structural issue there? Uh, and, and part of also the, you know, one of the, one of the reasons, you know, we can have confidence that what we're hearing are signals is that so many lean pub authors are technically mind. I mean, you know, <laughs> they're, they're writing books, right? You know, they're probably smart people to begin with, but you know, like we've got all these technically minded people who like actually like will send us screenshots showing the kind of console in, in kind of Chrome or whatever, you know, yep. with the error yeah, yeah. messages, you know, people, you know, so anyway, we, we're, we're very fortunate that uh, when, when, when we get reports of issues, actually people often know how to know how to communicate uh, yeah, yeah. in, in yeah, ways yeah. that make it easy to solve or easier to solve. So uh, 
The last question that I always like to ask people on this podcast uh, is, if there was one thing we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you, what would you ask us to do? It's a really good question. Uh, so the thing that immediately came to mind um, was actually just um, discount codes. So it's currently you've got a coupon thing currently, which is like a URL. But actually just being able to just – because cause the URL is a little – it's difficult to shorten. It would be nice to have just be able to copy and paste the discount code into the checkout, into the checkout box. Um, that would be – that would certainly help in lots of cases, I think. It's uh, it, that's really interesting. So you're the second person to say that in the last like three interviews I've done. I think um, mm -hmm. uh, the answer is that if someone has a coupon code, they need to enter it somewhere, which means mm -hmm. that there needs to be a coupon code box. When we used to have this, um, yeah. but when a normal customer goes to your book's landing page and they see a coupon code, if they don't have one. They might not buy your. They get, they get sad. Yeah, they would have because they think, yeah. oh, there's some. There's, I mean, a lot of people just don't care. They're like, mm. just they want the book. They're going to buy it if the price is mm. right. You know, that's fine. Mm -hmm. but there is a certain type of customer for whom that is a very unpleasant experience to see. Mm. Oh, mm. there's a coupon code. If only I had it, then I could get the discount. And then so what they might do is like try contacting you. And so now they're legitimately, but now they're taking it on Twitter or through email or whatever. And mm -hmm. they're like, hey, Matthew, can I get that coupon code? And yep. they're like, well, the coupon code expired, you know, because it was only for during this conference. And then they're like, well, what? But there's still a coupon code box on the landing page mm. for your book. And so actually having coupon code, like, well, you know, for those who get it and get to enter it, it, that's a great experience. But for everybody else seeing a coupon code box when they don't have a coupon code kind of sucks. Uh, mm. But I would, and so that's the reason we decided to go with coupon links. So you get a link mm. and, and you go to the, and then you go to a page that's like sort of designed for that coupon link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, uh, we're, we're always willing to revisit decisions that we've made. And since you're the second person to bring this up, you know, we'll, we take that as a strong sort mm. of signal that there's there's something that that authors are doing that or want to do that solves a certain problem mm. for people that we're mm. not offering right now i think one other thing that could be really interesting which is which is harder which is much harder would be some sort of plug-in mechanism into the into the generation process that would allow additional checks to be plugged in for example you know the service called is it called grammarly one of these kind of grammar checking and style checking things. Yeah. But imagine something where you could plug into that and have something do a tiny bit of kind of like copy editing type assessment into the PDF generation process. That'd be a bit awkward because you're effectively running someone else's code. But if there was some way to kind of hook into that, because that could be a super interesting thing. Because I can think of a whole lot of stuff I would want to write to assess all sorts of stuff about what the authors have written. And then this this is coming from the viewpoint of a publisher now. So through Complex Books, we're, we're, the the internal tech conferences book is published through Complex Books, and we're, that's the first of of, of of hopefully many different books that we're going to be publishing. So in that guise, I'm actually acting as a publisher or editor, and it'd be nice to be able to do a whole lot of editing checks automatically. But be, be kind of cool to have like a little marketplace or something like this where we can kind of oh, enable that plugin for checking grammar and enable this plugin for checking spelling, enable this plugin for checking something other kind of other kind of style things and, and yeah. um, getting output yeah, during the build process. That, that could be cool. That's a really interesting suggestion. Um, a couple of things I would say about that. One of them is one is that um, the sort of 
furthest reach of what you're describing is, you know, if, imagine I could click a button and the book would be translated into, <sighs> you know, a bunch of different languages and there'd be an audio book. You know, these are the kinds of things that technology actually like. I mean, there's certain types of books where you, I don't, I don't believe machines will ever be able to properly translate them. But with the kind of prescriptive nonfiction kind of books that are mm -hmm. sort of, you know, typical of LeanPub books, actually kind of automated translation is something that that is probably achievable a book about how to learn git that that's probably something that actually mm -hmm. could be translated uh, if it were written if it were written in the first mm -hmm. instance in the right way but, yep. so yeah so the sort of like space age version of what you're asking for is click a button and yeah. the book gets translated it into lots of different languages and it, and audiobook versions are created and stuff like that but the and 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 so then on another level it's like you know can i can i hook various services into what happens when i generate a lean pub book mm. uh, that's that's something that like you know because of what you're talking about, you know, as you mentioned, you know, kind of that's other people's code, stuff like that, that can be very complicated. But one thing that is not so complicated is us showing authors like directing authors to these different services because, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like, you know, even if we can't build or won't or, you know, it would take too much time or we might do it someday, but there's nothing stopping us from providing these resources to authors mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, our help center or, or somewhere in our documentation saying like, hey, by the way, one thing you can do is you can just upload your, your manuscript here and run it through this service. And then you'll get this. Cause we have one, one, one guy who, um, he, he, he speaks, I mean, he speaks English in the way Germans do, which is very well. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, but, but when he was writing, he was a little bit less confident. So what he would do is he would, he would write in English and then he had this, uh, online service where he would translate it to German. And then he would just, and then he would copy and paste the translation from that service and then paste it in again and translate it back into English. And, and so he would iterate on his, tra on his sort of grammar checking that, that way. And, and, and surfacing to authors, these kinds of practices and services is whether we build features or not is something that we could definitely, you know, help, help people by doing. Uh, well, thank you very much for those suggestions, Matthew. And thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview. Uh, and, That's right. It's been great. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and thank you very much for using LeanPub and for being a LeanPub author. That was great. It's great to be part of it. Thank you. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.